Good morning. Uh, my name is Corinne, and um, I serve in guest services and also um, help out with Karen, our church family. Um, we're going to be reading um, 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 16, and it's in the Blue Bibles that are under the chairs, um, page 138. If you haven't found it yet, I'll give you a moment. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did by day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Corinne. How are we doing this morning? Great. A few of us are great. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here, and I get to teach this pastor. So here's the kind of good news, bad news. Uh, good news, it's a great story. Bad news, it's a very long story. So what I have to do is teach chapter 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. I did not set up the preaching calendar, but I'm not going to teach word for word because that would be terrible and my wife would find another church in a hot second. What I'm going to do is sort of give the story because it's all under the same umbrella. And it's essentially this. God is making David into a great king. He has anointed him as a young boy. Picture a 12-year-old boy. Holy Spirit comes on him. He's anointed with oils. An outward expression is what happened on the inward, kind of like baptism for us. He is the king. And now this is the season of making him the king that God wants him to be. How would you want to be made great if you were in charge? Here's what I want. Captain America, I just want to be weak, puny, scared, insecure. I want all those deformities that are 
physically mine, emotionally mine, spiritual mine, and I want God to just fix them with some sort of serum and just make it happen like that. That is not at all what God does. Here's what God does throughout all of Scripture. This is one of the major themes of the Bible. He takes men and women who he's in love with and has called, and he's their father too. He's like, I'm not done with you. I've got greater things for you. But I don't have a serum that's going to make you what you need to be. I have something worse. It's called the wilderness. And he takes men and he takes women all throughout Scripture and he places them in the wilderness. And he makes them what they never could become on their own by his grace and by his wisdom in these wilderness moments. What is the wilderness? Here's what it is. It's a very long definition. If you're a note taker, write it down. But as I try to encapsulate what's happening in the wilderness in the Bible, here's what's happening. There are trying and painful God-ordained seasons. God's in control of every aspect of David's very terrible existence in this story we're about to read. God's doing it. Saul seems like the main character, but God's behind the scenes ordaining all this. And what is he doing? He's using it to prepare his people for deeper, wider, and more significant experience of Jesus and service in his kingdom. He's taking some of you right now, and he's got you in the season that you don't want to be in. And he has you there because he has something deeper for you, wider for you, more significant for you in both experiencing Jesus personally, but also your service that you're going to bring to the kingdom of God. And the way you're going to get there is through the wilderness. And that's what we're seeing in the life of David. So we're going to just walk through this text. I want to do just a few few questions here. Here's what we're going to answer as we walk through this morning. The first first one will be pretty quick. Next two will unpack. But who experienced the wilderness in the Bible? What was David's wilderness? And how do we thrive in the wilderness? Who experienced in the Bible? What was David's? Again, I told you, chapter 18 through 22. Basically, David's wilderness lasts for the rest of his life, but acutely it lasts while Saul's still alive, which is another 15 years of David's existence. It's a long wilderness, but that's what we're going to look at. So uh, first question, who in the Bible experienced the wilderness? Here's my short answer. Basically everyone that did anything substantial. God has very few Captain Americas in the Bible where God saves them, They pop out of whatever existence they're in, and their life is rosy and sweet and good, and God uses them in mighty ways. Almost every person in the Bible that has a substantial role to play has a wilderness experience. Joseph in the Old Testament is sold into slavery by his big brothers. Very, not a good move. And now he's off into Egypt, and he's a slave, and then he's in prison, and then he's falsely accused of sexual misconduct by the main guy's wife. Not, also, he didn't do anything, and that's where he's at. All this stuff going against him. Why? Because God is preparing for him a future when he's going to rescue his brothers from Israel because they are in famine. They don't have food. They don't have what they need, and he's now in charge in, in Egypt. He's number two in command. How did he get there? The wilderness. I think of Abraham and Sarah. You're going to have a kid. Your kid is the promise we're waiting for. Through your kid, this whole world is going to be blessed. Through your kid. Sarah's 90 years old. Decade after decade after decade of not having a kid. What's that called? That's called the wilderness. Like 25, 30, ish year old women in this room that want to be moms 
90 years old. And that whole time is you wanting, desiring, praying for a kid. And God did that in Sarah's life. And we as Christians have hope and truth that God is behind it all. That is called a wilderness experience. Moses is living in the kingly court in Egypt. Circumstances happen. He's now out in the actual wilderness shepherding sheep for year, season after season after season. Why? Because God's preparing him for the moment where he's going to shepherd his people, not animals. But his people, the Israelites, out of bondage in Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into the Promised Land. Moses, I'm preparing you in this wilderness moment. Forty years he's preparing him. And over and over and over again, Israel as a nation was put into the wilderness for 40 years. Wherever you open up, if somebody's being used by God, you flip back a couple pages, and I guarantee you there will be a wilderness experience. And what we open up to here in 1 Samuel is David's experience in the wilderness so i now want to look at the life of david here in this wilderness here's the second question what is david's wilderness experience just to get us caught up to speed if if you're just showing up for the first time and you're kind of figuring out where we're at we're walking through this book first samuel it's a book about three kings primarily saul david solomon we're in this weird season this sort of liminal space this in-between space where saul and david are both kings kind of but that's what we're, so what happened is David was anointed king after Saul had already been king, but Saul, God's like, no, nah, Saul's not my guy. So he gives David his spirit, anoints David. David's now king, but Saul's still publicly king. David is sort of privately king, but nobody even really knows it, not even David himself. And we're in this season now where the king and the king are both on the scene. And how's it going with two kings? How's it go with two popes? Michael Scott, it does not go well. Let's read here, chapter 18, verse 1 through 9. How does this all start here? As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. The saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have? But the kingdom, and Saul eyed David from that day on. That's the beginning of David's wilderness. And it's Saul's jealousy is pricked inside of him, and it never goes away. It just grows and cultivates and gets worse and more ravenous and more murderous and more out of control. And we're watching the moment when that thing inside Saul's heart turns. And now he's going after David until Saul is dead. There's a great little book, Tale of Three Kings. If you have a 
terrible boss, rough parents, terrible in-laws, some version of somebody above you that's hard to deal with. Tale of Three Kings is basically a guy kind of telling the story of Saul and David and how you live in a world where the person above you is just brutal. And this is a quote he has about David now being brought into the wilderness by God. In the wilderness, the key person, the key figure in the wilderness is Saul's anger towards David. He says this, in God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in this school must suffer much pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who meets out that pain. That would be Saul in this story. David was once a student in this school, in this story we're going to read, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. What's happening? Saul's jealousy is turned up, flared up. God's the one choosing to use Saul and his jealous heart to crush David. Why? Because he's making something with David. He's turning him into a king. And kings aren't made with serum. They're made with wilderness moments. And what we're going to read, you keep turning pages, it's Saul just losing his mind and all of his anger is going after David, after David, after David. So what was it like to be in this wilderness for David? Let's just look at a few of these instances where Saul really does try to go after David here. First one happens there in verse 10, right after this little moment where some ladies are singing a song and Saul gets jealous and it's like, all right, game over, he's, he's done so. Verse 10 and 11 says this, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Right out of the gate, David's playing a, however you play a harp, I don't know, it's like this, singing to him. He might not even be through puberty yet, so he might have a still a sweet, squeaky voice singing to him, and Saul throws a spear at him. The medicine that is curing the angst and the depression and the craziness in his soul, that man's voice and that man's instrument, he throws a spear at him. That's the beginning of David's wilderness. He misses. David runs away. All right, Saul's like, what am I going to I'm going to use my kids now. So go to verse 17. Verse 17 through 22, now Saul's going to bring his daughters into this mix to use them as pawns in his chess match, trying to get David to the point of being able to take his life. Verse 17, and Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let, my, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at that time, it's a mute point anyways, because Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. She was already given to Adriel, the Mahalothite, for a wife. All right, next daughter coming here, verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, or Michal, you can say it either way, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Pause right there. So the first wife, he has an idea. She actually, he didn't realize there was an agreement. She gets married off. Okay, Michael, you'll be the one. You'll be a snare. You'll sort of trap him. He'll lose his sort of acute warrior sense and the Philistines will kill him. Go down to verse 28. 29. 
But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So Michael get, gets in on the secret, and she loves David, so she fills him in. He escapes a murder plot yet again. Saul is going to get this guy. Go to chapter 19, verse 1. Saul, Saul switches gears. All right, I'm going to talk to my son. Verse 1, Saul spoke to Jonathan's son and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, son, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Same thing happens. I want to kill him. There's a guy in the mix that actually likes David. He keeps him alive. Let's keep going. Verse 8, jump down to verse 8. David's rescued out of the hands. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's serving at war or he's playing the liar for Saul. He's being faithful. Verse 8, there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Holy smokes. Every time you see David, he's doing the faithful, submissive, obedient thing to do and Saul is trying to kill him he's in there playing the liar and he's keep trying to kill young David verse 11 that didn't work Saul sent messages to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning I am gonna get this guy go to verse 15 it didn't work out in that so he tries again verse 15 then Saul sent messengers again to see David saying bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him Go down to verse 20, just so we get the point and we really sense what this wilderness is for David. Verse 20, then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Pause right there. This is where it gets a little weird. So Saul's like, I'm going to use my daughters, that didn't work. I'm going to use Jonathan, that didn't work. I'm going to send messengers, that didn't work. I'm going to send these messengers into the, where the prophets are near David, that didn't work. And why did this one not work? The Spirit comes on these prophets, and they, start, they come with the message of getting David for a murderous plot. And the Spirit comes on them, and they all start prophesying together. Basically, they're going on a mission for this guy who wants to kill David. Spirit comes on, and then a church service breaks out. And then Chandler walks out from the back with his guitar and they start singing Amazing Grace. And they come back, they're like, did you do? Nope, didn't happen. So he sends messengers again. And the same thing, Spirit of God comes on them. I praise you, God. A church service breaks out. He's like, I cannot get this guy. And you could just see his rage. Like, oh. How bad does it get for David? Because right now, like, it's still kind of a... You could tell this to kids, and it's not that gruesome of a story, although if you're, like, really paying attention, like, somebody's trying to murder another human, so it's bad. But it hasn't, like, escalated a point of, like, whoa, that's, like, front-page news. This is wicked. You keep going. You go verse 20. It's now, or chapter 20 is Jonathan and David. Again, more warnings, more warnings. Chapter 21, David's on the run. He's hungry in this moment. There's this priest who helps him. Chapter 21, the priest's name is Ahimelech. It's a story that Jesus actually talks about just briefly in the New Testament, talking about Sabbath and eating holy things. But this priest gives David holy bread because he's hungry. He's like, I'm running, I'm running, I'm parched. This guy keeps trying to kill me. He gives him some food. 
Chapter 22, fast forward, now David's in a cave, and Saul is still on the mission to kill David. Jonathan has helped him out. This priest, Ahimelech, has now helped him out. Saul is on a mission to kill this guy, and chapter 22 is where it escalates to in the wilderness for David. How bad does it get? Like, I've never had an attempt on my life. I broke up with a girl in college one time, and someone told me she tried to run you over. I don't know if she actually did. But this guy actually is having his life sought over and over and over again. And now I want to read here verse 13 of chapter 22. This is the pinnacle of Saul's raging, evil, unstable mental health and the lengths he'll go to get David. Verse 13, and Saul said to him, so now Saul's at the priest Ahimelech who had helped out in the chapter prior. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as, it, as at this day? Why are you helping this guy out? Ahimelech the priest answered the king. And who among your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in all your house? Is today the first time, first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to a servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. His response, you're the one that made this guy great. He's in charge in your house. He's in command over your army. He's married to your daughters. He's looking up because Saul's the tallest guy. You did all this. And yes, I pray for him. I pray for all God's anointed. Verse 16. And the king, now this is Saul, said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. Verse 17. The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. So just so we know what's happening. Saul, you're going to die, talking to Ahimelech. Saul turns to his guard, kill him. Kill them all. Jewish guy, the guard in the Jewish army, kill him. But the servant of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. It's not just killing somebody. It's not killing a Philistine or even a Jewish person. It's killing the priests, the holy set-apart ones of the people of God. Saul's reached what we call the point of no return. His evil is spilled over and he will do anything even take out the priests, the holy ones. How bad will it get? Verse 18. His own person wouldn't help him, so he, the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. Pause right there. So he turns outside of Israel. He has to go outside of Israel to do something so evil. So he calls an Edomite. You kill the priests. Remember, God said, you don't want a king, trust me. They're going to be just like the other nations. No, 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 I think, I think what we need here is a king. No, 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 trust me. No, I think we want a king. They're going to be just like the other nations. And now Saul, in his pinnacle moment, calls the other nations in to slaughter the religious leaders of Israel. And how bad does it get? He turned and struck down the priests. He killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. There's maybe 30 full-time staffers across redemption. Knocks out redemption, knocks out SBC, knocks out. And Nob, 
The city of the priests he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. How bad does it get? He slaughters women and children and priests, all in an attempt to kill David, the guy who sings to him at night so he can get a good night rest. What is David's wilderness like? It is probably worse than anything any of us will ever be in. Why? Because what David was going to do for the kingdom was deeper, wider, more significant than I'm capable of getting to probably. So God didn't have that wilderness for me, but he had it for David. Now, this being just a brutal story, where do we go now as we try to make some sense of this? Here's my final question for us is how do we thrive in the wilderness, especially as we look at the life of David, as he's just on the run, on the run, on the run, how do we thrive in the wilderness? And here's what I know. In this room right now, there are people in the wilderness. Like you like don't have to do much thinking. You're like, this is, he's talking to me. Like this message God prepared for me. Some of you are like, I've been in wilderness. I know, and I don't think I did a great job being faithful through it. But here's what I know about all of us. We're all going to go through a wilderness multiple wildernesses, if God is going to use us for significant work in the kingdom of God. That's just how Christianity works. Like in my last 10 years, I can think of four deep, painful wilderness seasons God put me through. And I'm still in the middle of my life. And I've got four on the calendar pretty recently. Why? Because he wants more. He wants deeper he wants more significant experience of him and service for the kingdom. So as we just wrap up this story, what do we learn from the life of David? How do we thrive in the wilderness? Here's the first thing I'd say. Learn how to lament. Like, just real quick, flip over to Psalm 142. I just want to show you the hyperlinks in the Bible. Like, all this is connected. All the authors, all the themes, all the motifs, everything about this book comes under one banner. It's the redemptive story of God. It all goes together. Psalm 142 is a psalm that David wrote. When did David write this psalm? Let's just look there at the top. It says, Psalm 142, you are my refuge. What's the little title there? It says, a masculine of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. So Saul is slaughtering the priest. Where is David? He's in a cave hiding out, writing a poem. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy, Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble. I need you. What is David doing? He's lamenting in the middle of the wilderness. Some of us need to learn how to lament. The author of the book, Tale of Three Kings, says this about David becoming a poet. He sang a great deal as he was on the run. What was he doing in the wilderness? This author would say he sang a lot and matched each note with a tear. How strange is it not what suffering begets? There in those caves, drowned in the sorrow of a song and in the song of a sorrow, David became the greatest hymn writer and the greatest comforter of broken hearts this world will ever know. What do we need to learn in the wilderness? Learn how to lament. Very simply, it's complaining towards God. Not online, not to your kids. Not to your spouse, that could be a part of it potentially, but it's complaining towards God. Book of Psalms, just to give you a visual, is 150 songs. It's the soundtrack of the Bible. We got that graphic up there. Blue is how many lament psalms there are, which means the biggest category of music in the Bible given to us by God is lament, which means it's hard 
to live in this world. I mean, just, we live in this world where David is king and Saul is king. And Saul is doing ravenous things. But David's king. It should be better than this. Yes, I know, but Saul is still king. For us, Jesus is king. His death, his life, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. He is now seating on the throne right now. He's in charge of everything. Yet this guy, the prince of the air, the ruler of the ages, the serpent, the deceiver, is also in charge. And we live in the season where Jesus, the king, is in charge. But so is this guy a little bit. More than we'd like to admit. Well, what do we do when this guy wreaks havoc? We cry out to God and say, God, it's not how it should be. Some of us really need to learn how to lament. Like a lot of Christianity is sort of pushing us out of our emotions and like stuffing stuff, getting on the rug and just get on with it. Yeah, but no, 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 no. The soundtrack of the Bible, the main tune played is a minor note. A song of lament in the background of the people of God. Why? Because the wilderness is a reality. And David kicked it off for us to say, hey, when you're in the wilderness, one of the things you need to do, maybe the main thing God's teaching you in this wilderness is how to properly posture yourself towards God in a heart of lament. God, this, I don't like this. I hate this. This is not how it should be. Learn how to lament. Here's the second thing we need to do because we need to be able to look around and notice faithfulness and friendships around us. Even that Psalm, Psalm 142, you don't need to turn there, but here's what David says in the middle of it. I look to the right and I see there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. There is no one caring for my soul. So David's in the cave and his prayer is, God, this is terrible and no one else is looking out for me. We named our oldest son Elijah. He's a great prophet in the Old Testament. If you fast forward, he kind of comes on the scene a little bit later. But he has a similar moment. He's trying to be faithful in this dark world. And he comes to this prayer, and he's all by himself. And he's like, God, am I the only one left? I'm the only one faithful to you. No one else. I alone have refused to worship Baal. Everyone else has abandoned you. And God kind of takes his head and says, did you look over there? Hundreds of your brothers and sisters have not bowed to Baal yet. You are not alone. And I think for Christians, there's this unique danger that we get into seasons of pain and loneliness kicks in and we sort of sense like, I'm the only one dealing with this. No one is there for me. I'm all alone. I think that's partially like our sinful disposition. I think partially that's how it feels. And I think Satan is trying to trick you into believing that. And God's like, no, no, no. There's others around. Like out of those seasons of hard wilderness for me, each one of them did this uniquely in my heart. Each one made me feel more and more lonely than I've ever felt in my entire life. Like my whole life I've been super social. My mom owned a restaurant. I was the host from like birth on. I just love being around people, connecting. And then I enter these wilderness seasons. I'm like, I'm the only guy left in this world. And I'm the only one going through this. And we're going through this hard stuff with my wife and miscarriages, and it's like just killing us. And this counselor I meet with, she's like, you just need to know this. God loves you, and you're not alone. I'm like, that'll be $250 for <laughs> the most simple Christian message ever. Okay, I'll, uh... And I go to class the next morning, and I sit down, and the guy next to me, Michelle, my Brazilian friend, 
He's like, hey, man, God's got you on my heart a lot. And I'm praying for you and your family. And it was like God saying, hey, look over there. You're not alone. I know it feels that way, David, but you're never, ever, ever alone. Even for David, if you just look up a little bit and look back, be like, oh, Jonathan. That's, I had this like, great friend built in the entire time. Like Jonathan, this is how he's described in 18 verse 4. Jonathan, when he meets David, loves him, loves him as himself. He strips himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Just a reminder on who Jonathan is. Saul is king. Jonathan is Saul's boy. That's his son. Translation, he should be the next king. And he sees David and Jonathan says, I love you. And he takes off his robe, which was a sign of, hey, you're the king. I serve you. Like, we need some more Jonathan-type friends in this world. Egoless, sacrificial, behind the scenes. Like, what if our church was the church of Jonathan's? None of us had social media. None of us had any hype or awareness. Nobody knew anything about us. But there was all these little stories popping up everywhere about this person who was just so faithful to me. And he was there for me, and she was there for me. And she had no ego. He had no ego. We want to be a church of Jonathan's. Like Christianity has just gotten annoying online. Like I'm on Twitter, and I try to follow like people from different camps just to be like in the middle of the conversation going on, whatever the conversation is. Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Trump is doing whatever Trump's doing. We got Biden doing whatever. And I just want to hear, like, what are people saying? In Christianity, here's what happens. Every morning, something gets dusted up. Like, what's your view on women in leadership in the church? And it's like explosion. And then everybody's like yelling. What's your views on sexuality? And, like, all the smoke is in the air on Twitter and Facebook. And I'm not on TikTok, but I'm assuming there a little bit. Maybe it's a happier place. All the smoke is in the air. And before the smoke even settles, the next morning, the next thing is online. And everybody's just yelling. Like, we want to be a church. Who cares what everybody's saying? Jonathan was just faithfully there for the king, even though he should have been king if he was following the lineage properly. Jonathan was a good friend. Here's what I want to ask you. Who are the Jonathans in your life? Like, and just... Tell them, thank you, thank you. Third thing is this, what's the wilderness for? How can we thrive? We need to practice submission even if it is hard. Like here's the story of Saul. I will not submit to anyone. Nobody tells me what to do. To the point of he goes absolutely mad. Here's the story of David. I'm gonna submit in every possible situation even if it doesn't make sense to my closest friends or any of us in this room reading this story. Like, let me just remind you of what David's doing. Chapter 19, verse 8, there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow so that they fled before them. What is David doing? He's going out to war because Saul sent him, and he does his battle. He wins. He's successful. He's listening to the king. He's submissive to the king. Verse 9, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, David was playing the liar. He goes and he's successful. And Saul's like, ah, oh, I got this panic attack going on. And I got this stuff. He's also holding his spear. He's like, David, can you come in here again and play for me? And David sits down and plays the harp for him while Saul's holding a spear to kill him. 
What is David doing? He is being submissive no matter how not fun it looks. And here's what I think most of what wilderness does is it teaches us how to submit. Like I was praying for us as a church, and I'm thinking like, what situations in our life, what relationships, what sort of domains of life do we need to learn how to submit in? And here's the Christian answer, which you're going to hate, but I don't care because it's what the Bible is everyone. Children, submit to your parents. Well, I'm going to get out of my house and get my own job, okay? Colossians says, submit to your master. Submit to those that are over you in your employment. Oh, this, well, I'm just going to get a wife, and I'm not going to live off my money. Husbands and wives, submit to one another out of love. And every time you leave the house, Romans 13 says, submit to your governing authorities. I'm going to go to a church that teaches the Bible. You guys, Hebrews says, submit to your church leaders. And I don't say, like, let's end the mic drop, and then you... Wherever you go as a Christian, the thing that God's trying to grow in you, not the only thing, but one of the main things is a submissive heart. And what David is learning in the wilderness is how to submit, because one day he's going to put on a crown, and everyone's going to bow to him, and he's going to be in charge. And God does not want a king there who has not learned how to submit. God does not want a husband in this room to marry a wife when he's never submitted to another person. You understand me, young men? I got all these people coming in. I want to get married. I want to get married. Who are you submitting to? David, who are you submitting to? I'll show you the guy in the corner with the spear trying to kill me. Why? It's the wilderness God has for me. How do you thrive in the wilderness? Don't forget this word, submission. What is God teaching me? Who am I learning how to submit to? It doesn't end with that. Gloomy news, here's our last thing we want to remember, is we want to remember Jesus in our wilderness. Like, what is, what's the ultimate fear of wilderness? Is that it leads us to a point of hopelessness, where we give up on God, life, faith. It's like, it's too much. So, like, as we're in the wilderness, when we, we can use our own strength to, like, I can do this. Or we can, like, hope in some imaginary expiration date when this, wilderness is going to run its course none of us really know what that is but we can kind of hope and assume or we can do this hebrew says it this way look to jesus the perfecter and founder of our faith who is not disconnected from wilderness pain he does not send us into the wilderness and watch from a distance watching Bear Grylls with my boys. I'm loving it. Bear Grylls, what does he do? He gets in the wilderness with his people. He's right there every step of the way, eating the maggots, eating the worms, eating the gross fish. He's doing it all. He's with him. Jesus is better. He's right there. He came down to earth, put on flesh, the incarnation. And then while he had flesh on, he also went into a wilderness before his ministry ever began. The beginning of the gospels is he was filled with the spirit and the spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. He did not eat. He did not drink. He submitted himself to his father, and he overcame temptation. Why? So that this could be written about him and for us. Since then, we have a great high priest, Hebrews 4 says, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession, especially in the wilderness. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, but without sin. So what's the big so what? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need, especially in the wilderness God has us in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, so much of Christianity is just a crushing of my expectations and hopes on how it should be and could be, and you rebuilding back what the good life is. And this theme of wilderness, across the board, we're in agreement. We would not want the wilderness if we were in charge. We would have done it a different way. And yet, time and time again, in your word and in our own life, the wilderness has proven to be exactly what we need. And it's given us a deeper insight into you. It's given us wider influence. It's given us more significant relationship with Christ. And it's prepared us more deeply for the service you have for us. So God, as a church, we want to soberly help one another walk through the wilderness we don't want to be those cheesy Christians who smile and try to brush the hard stuff under the rug getting to a hopeful end before you've declared that to be we want to faithfully walk into the dark wilderness because it's where you have us and it's where you're making us and shaping us and forming us to something far better than we could ever become on ourselves, by ourselves. So God, thank you for the wilderness. Thank you for David and just the picture of what it looks like to become a king who has encountered the wilderness. Lord, help us to be faithful. In your son's name we pray.